Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these children. We pray that you would build into them. Father, protect them, their bodies, their minds, their hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would now make us like them. We remember what Jesus said, unless you become like one of these little ones, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so God, I pray, make us aware of our absolute dependence on you. And Father, make us eager to come to you, to receive from you what you as our loving Father has for us. So God, feed us now, we pray. Nurture us. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to feed our bodies. Feed us now in our spirit and our soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been thinking a bit lately, and for several reasons this past week, I've been just particularly aware of the responsibility that comes with having a platform and people listening to you. I've been acutely aware again this past week of the power of words for good and for evil. It makes you think twice before you get up to speak. It certainly makes you want to be really careful. And sometimes, to be honest, it can make you just not want to speak at all. But then there is this thing that God has designed pastor teachers given to the church for the equipping of the church. And I don't want to disregard that. So, would you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, if you look at a map, you will see that the shortest way from Egypt to the Promised Land is not going down into the wilderness of Sinai. God had promised his people, that he would lead them into a land, here's how he described it, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he said. So why is it that he's leading them in the opposite 
direction down into the like barren wilderness of Sinai, further and further from their destination. Why is God leading them to this mountain? Did you notice what verse 2 calls it? The mountain. Maybe you remember way back in chapter 3 when God met Moses out in the desert with that burning bush. That was at the foot of this mountain. And after revealing himself and his, his great name to Moses, God spoke these words. Remember this? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So here Israel is encamped, looking up at these kind of rugged, rocky cliffs that are rising right up out of the desert. And here they will remain for the rest of the book of Exodus. In fact, for the entirety of the book of Leviticus and a good part of the book of Numbers. And here in this lonely, wild place out in the desert, they will meet the living God. They've come to Mount Sinai. God has something to say to them, and there is, in what God says to them, a clear and wonderful message for us here this morning as well. That message actually emerges at a few points in these chapters, chapters 19 through 24, but it is right here in super concentrated form in these opening verses of chapter 19. I have heard these verses referred to as the heart of the Old Testament. So you follow along as I read the first eight verses of chapter 19. This is God's word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. I wonder what that was like for Moses. Did he recognize that voice from before? Did hearing that voice again just give him chills as he stood there? Listen to what God said to him, verse 4. Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. I need to tell you that as I plotted out this series through Exodus, this was the section that I was most concerned about. I mean, arguably, the most well-known 
part of Scripture in all the Bible is here. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. I mean, how am I going to cover all Ten Commandments to say nothing about all of the laws, some of them very strange and hard to deal with in chapters 21 through 24? But there is a foundation for us to stand on to understand all of that. Everything that is found in chapter 20. Everything that is found in chapters 21 through 24. And that foundation is found right here in these opening verses of chapter 19. So this is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. I'll say a few things about the other chapters, but there is something really important and really good for us right here in chapter 19. Now, to help us get this, let me remind you of something we heard over and over again back in chapters 5 through 10 when Moses was confronting Pharaoh. Time and again, Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, do you remember? Let my people go. Eight times Moses stood before Pharaoh and spoke those words, and every time, do you know what immediately followed those words? That they may serve me. Every time. Let my people go, that they may serve me. Once it's that they may hold a feast to me. Once it's that they may sacrifice to me. Six times, literally the words, that they may serve me. And it's the same point, no matter how Moses says it. You see, in the, in the grammar and the logic of Exodus, let my people go is an incomplete sentence. It's an incomplete thought. Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, let's not stumble over that word serve. In the Old Testament, that word means worship, which means to be in right, healthy, life-giving relationship with God. You see the point, right? God is rescuing his people not just to bring them out of slavery. He's rescuing his people to bring them into a very special relationship with him. God is forming a people for himself. We hear it in those words in verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession. Do you remember what God said so emphatically back in chapter 6. I really tried to stress this when we were there. Chapter 6, God says, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The exodus was not just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It was about getting Israel close to God. Listen, your salvation is not just about getting you out of enslavement to sin. It's about bringing you into close, life-giving connection with God. God did not set Israel free from slavery to Pharaoh so that they could just now go and kind of invent their own identity, live their own lifestyles. No, he set them free so that they could have true life in him. God did not set you free from slavery so that you could now be free to just go live however you choose. He set you free so that you could live the life that is truly life by living with him and in him. Those who, those who serve Pharaoh perish. Those who serve the Lord flourish. 
Those who serve sin and their own selfish desires perish. Those who serve the Lord flourish. They grow in obedience and joy and glory and delight. What does that first question of the Catechism ask? What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is profound. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The freest people in the world are those who are owned by Jesus. The freest people in the world are those who belong to God in Christ. And this is illustrated, I find, very interestingly by the very first instruction that follows the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but right at the beginning of chapter 21, look there for a moment, Exodus chapter 21, you find this instruction that after six years of service, a Hebrew slave should be freed. But if he says, I love my master, and I want to stay, then, look at verse 6, chapter 21, verse 6, then his master shall bring him before God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And the fact that that involves blood and a doorpost cannot help but remind us of the Passover when God rescued his people. Listen, God sets his people free that they might belong to him, that we might be his and find life. But it is extremely important for us to get something crystal clear this morning. And we find it in these opening verses of chapter 19. And in the truth that we are going to see here is where we'll find the wonderful and liberating and life-sustaining, joy-producing I think, oh, so helpful and so encouraging message for us this morning as well. I want you to notice the sequence that is presented there in verses 4, 5, and 6 of Exodus 19. First, God saves. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Second, God calls us to hear and to obey. Verse 5, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And then third, God promises blessing, his goodness on us. The rest of verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It is absolutely critical that we see and understand that sequence. What God has done for us, what God calls for from us, what God promises to us. Nothing must be allowed to change that order. The people of God, let's be very clear about this, the people of God are not ordered to obey in order to receive God's salvation. We'd never make it. But having already received God's saving grace, we are called to obey so that we might live in the good of what God has done for us. It is to those he's saved that he makes known his will and his ways. Or to put it very simply, we don't follow God's rules in order to get saved. We follow God's rules because we've been saved. 
There are now, because of God's work of grace in our lives, there are now new desires, new abilities, new goals, a new will. God's grace always precedes our obedience. So let's look at each of these steps presented here. First, what God has done, God has saved. Look again at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What I did to the Egyptians. I mean, how, we could, how could we forget how God just humiliated the so-called Egyptian gods one by one and how God showed his power over Pharaoh through those ten plagues. And it's not just what he did to Egypt. More importantly, what he did for Israel. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I mean, here is this beautiful picture of how God in his power and his majesty and his fatherly care looked after his weak and vulnerable people, leading them out, providing for them food, water, strength, protection, everything they needed. He rescued them. Verse 4, I mean, think about this. Exodus 19, verse 4 is a deliberate summary of everything we've seen in Exodus from chapter 5 right to the beginning of chapter 19, bringing them here to this mountain. And he tells them, you know. You've seen it firsthand. It happened right before your eyes. You yourselves have seen. So what God is saying is that all of this law that I'm about to give you, this is not about you earning your salvation. I've already saved you. Your relationship with me is not initiated. It's not established by your observing of the law, by you doing good things. These laws are not to establish a relationship with me. They are part of being in relationship with me. So first, always first, God saves God initiates. He rescues and redeems and brings us into relationship with himself. Imagine, imagine what would happen if it was the other way around. We'd all be doomed, damned by our inability to obey, by our sin. But God is a God of grace. First, God rescues us from our sin and its penalty. Then he teaches us how to live for his glory. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. And that leads us to the second step. God calls us, he calls us to obey. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, What is this? Keeping my covenant. This is actually the first time that the Bible uses that phrase, keep my covenant. What's this covenant? Well, the covenant was God's promise, his unbreakable promise of love for his people. He spoke it first to Abraham. He said, listen, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bring you into a place a land of your own where you will be in special relationship with me and you will experience my love for you. And he he confirmed that promise to Isaac and then to Jacob. And that promise remained all of the long years that Egypt was in, or Israel was in Egypt. 
And then in order to make good on that promise, he, he brought his people out of Egypt. Listen, Exodus is the story of God remembering and keeping his covenant. And up to this point, what the covenant required of God's people was very simple. Faith. Believe God's promises. But there was to be another requirement, and that is obedience to God's will. And so here, God reveals his will to his people. That's why he brought them to this mountain. That's why he has Moses going up and down this mountain multiple times. I'm guessing Moses would have preferred an escalator after a while. I can't keep track of how many times he goes up and down this mountain. I think it's seven times. Moses, the mediator of this covenant, representing God to Israel every time he comes down from that mountain and representing Israel to God every time he goes up that mountain, carrying God's word to God's people. Listen, you know this. Our God is a speaking God who communicates his word and his will to us, and we are to be characterized by obedience to what he says, actual obedience. I mean, the hallmark of the genuineness of the people of God is that they have and they listen to and they obey God's word. But think about it. What else would you want to do if you've been rescued? born on eagles' wings, saved. Your whole heart wants to respond somehow to God. But how is that impulse supposed to translate into real life? You see, it's necessary that God speaks and makes his will known. Our life of obedience, think about this, our life of obedience arises out of our hearing of God's word. The Spirit of God takes the word of God and transforms our little impulse to please God into actual conduct. And God's word is designed to be life-changing. Godliness in you, godliness in me, godliness in our lives is obedience to what God has spoken. You know, we talk about this, the Ten Commandments and all that we see in chapters 21 through 24 as God's law. I'm not sure that the English word law is our best friend here. Because the Hebrew word underneath that is actually the word Torah. And that word actually comes from the word to teach. So what we have here is God teaching. God, like a loving parent, teaching his children for their well-being, what is good and how the world works. So the words... These words are not designed to bring people into some new bondage. They're designed to establish us in our new freedom. That's, that's why the Apostle James refers to the law of the Lord as the perfect law of, do you know what it is? Liberty. All of the truth that is seen here is God establishing us in freedom. And the truth of that is shown when you see, when you look around and see the, the awful and the just degrading and enslaving effects that people experience when they reject God's law. 
These are meant to establish us in truly human life as God designed it. So when we read the Ten Commandments, for example, it should not be with a sense of foreboding. What's God going to deprive me of? It should be with a sense of confidence. This is how to live the good life. This law is for life, healthy, whole, satisfying, flourishing. Look there with me at chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you had other gods before you? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you had multiple idols to which you were beholden day after day? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you worked every day of your life? There's wisdom here. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody just took whatever they wanted to whenever they wanted it? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his servants or his animals or anything. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us. Or we'll die. Can you imagine what life would be like if those were just completely ignored? The chaos and the anarchy. And all of those laws, sometimes strange, peculiar sounding, that follow in chapters 21, 22, 23, these laws that speak about what to do when humans injure other humans and when animals injure humans and laws concerning property and loans and testimony in court and false worship and true worship. All of that is simply application of the principles of the Ten Commandments to specific social and religious situations in our daily lives. And the fact that as you read this, that there appears to be no discernible order, it just reflects the fact that that's what life is like. It's a jumble. One thing coming after another, but God is wanting us to pay attention and keep his word in every and all situations that we encounter in life, in every and all situation, God's, God wants us to live distinctly. I mean, just listen to what Moses says 40 years later after wandering in the wilderness. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? All right, step number three. We have seen first God saves. That's step number one. 
Second, God calls us to obedience. That's step number two. Now, step number three, God promises blessing. Particular blessing when we walk in his ways. Look again, Exodus 19, verse, second part of verse five. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has already told the Israelites who he is. He's the God of their salvation who bore them on eagles' wings. Now he's telling them who they are. They are his precious people, his treasure. I mean, you know how it makes you feel when somebody important in your life says to you, you are my treasure. And here is God, the maker of heaven and earth, saying to his people, you are my treasure. I treasure you. Why? Why? Moses answers this question in the book of Deuteronomy. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's why because he set his love on you. And what about us? I mean, I'm guessing there are times when you, like me, don't feel very precious, like a treasure. Because we struggle, we feel weighed down, we feel stressed out by jobs and small children. Things don't seem to go well, we get discouraged, we get sick. Listen, whatever your struggles, if you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. The Apostle Peter takes these very words from Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and he applies them directly to believers. You can find it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So we know every Christian is precious to God, a treasured possession and loved with a unique and an everlasting love. Now, there's one last thing that we need to notice this morning. I want you to flip over with me to chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood from those offerings and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What is this? The writer of the book of Hebrews has this very passage in mind when he wrote these words. 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. We'll talk about those next week. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant. But when Jesus came to offer himself in our place on the cross, he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness, the absolute forgiveness of sin. Just as God rescued his people and brought them to himself and established them in a covenant relationship with him, so God has rescued all who are covered by the blood of Christ, and he's brought us to himself to enjoy the fullness of life through walking with him. My dear friends, this is what God is like. This is how God does things. And what we see here in Exodus just anticipates his great work of redemption and forming a people in Christ. I'm sure I've said this dozens of times over the years. The Old Testament is just a big finger pointing forward to Jesus. And what we've seen is what we know to be true with Jesus. God saves. And God calls us to obey. And God promises his goodness on his people. He rescues us, and then he calls us into a life shaped by his word until one day he will bring us into the place he's promised, and that will be amazing. Better than we've ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Once again, we just pray that you would take that and put it in the places in each one of us, in, in our minds and in our hearts, where it will bear fruit. God, don't let these words fall to the ground, we pray. Use them. Put them where they will be a part of what you're building in us as your people, as a church, and as individual Christians, God, I pray, use your word to strengthen our faith and to strengthen our obedience so that we might live for your glory and in the richness of this life you've given us in Christ.
We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.